Our theme for this morning is the Transfiguration, or we could call it Jesus Only. If you open your Bibles to the book of Matthew, chapter 16, the last verse, I'll read from the last verse of the 16th chapter down through the 8th verse of the 17th chapter. And you will notice that there are agreements and then some added details that are given here that not in Mark that we read and then some added details in Mark that is not, were not given here. But you'll notice the unity here just as in Mark. Now Mark it is clear because when they divided up the chapters they put the, what is the 28th verse of the 16th chapter of Matthew I hope you have your Bibles open looking here. Maybe it isn't making much sense. Uh, the, they put what is the 28th verse of the 16th chapter of Matthew uh, in Mark in the same chapter as that which follows. When they divided up the chapters in Matthew, they broke it up, which is too bad because it spoils the unity. You must always remember, of course, that the chapter and the verse divisions have nothing to do with the Bible. They're only very convenient index marks put in at a very, very late date. And you must never read the Bible as though you can get any sort of certain unity or meaning from the chapter or the verse divisions. Some of them are very poorly done indeed. And the, uh, it's one, one difficulty. You have to read in blocks, of course, because you can't read a whole book at a time in your devotional reading and your study. And we tend to stop at the chapters. And then we, we read a chapter and then we stop and then the next day we read the next chapter, and we tend, therefore, to think of them as blocks in the chapters rather than a flow. And this really, really destroys the meaning many, many times. And that's the case here. Verily I say unto you that there be some standing here which shall not taste of death, till they see this Son of Man coming in his kingdom. And after six days, Jesus taketh Peter, James, and John, his brother, and bringeth them up into a high mountain apart and was transfigured before them, and his face did shine as the sun, and his raiment was white as the light. And behold, there appeared unto them Moses and Elijah talking with him. Then answered Peter and said unto Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here, if you will. Let us make here three tabernacles, one for thee, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And while he yet spake, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and behold, a voice out of the cloud which said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. And when the disciples heard it, they fell on their face and were sore afraid. And Jesus came and touched them and said, Arise, and do not be afraid. And when they had lifted up their eyes, they saw no man, they Jesus only. Now here you will notice the, again the unity. Jesus is saying here that there's some here that are going to see this great thing. And then immediately in both Matthew and Mark, you are immediately followed by the transfiguration. And the transfiguration is linked then later with the resurrection, as we shall see, the resurrection of Christ. Now, as we think here then of the wonders of the transfiguration, there are many things that immediately or should immediately come to our minds that stand out with tremendous wonder. The first thing that we should be filled with wonder about, and in our 20th century it has special meaning, and that is the space-timeness of what is involved here. It is that which man would think of as supernatural, that suddenly, suddenly here is Moses and here is Elijah. One long dead, one translated 
long, long ago. And Jesus, and Jesus is glorified. But you will notice that this is not off in some area of existential thought. It is not in merely a thought world. It is connected with a space-timeness that is very strong and really very tough, as a matter of fact, in space-timeness. So you must see what happens. They walk up the mountain. And as they walk up the mountain, they come to a certain space-time place. It's a place of geography, just as much as though we were walking up one of these hills over here, just as much as this. It is a time, a timeness, just as much as now, so that we could look at our watches and we could determine the time. And there is a ticking of the clock. So the clock keeps ticking as they go up the mountain. The clock never stops. And life is going on at the bottom of the mountain. And that's a very thing, important thing to understand. Life is still going on. There is, no, there is no break, either in time or in space, of what is involved. And what occurs with the supernaturalness is right in the middle of the space-time world. It is not a philosophic other. It is not where the modern theologians would put religious thought into some sort of upper-story situation. It's none of this here. It is the simplest thing you can imagine and the most profound. The supernatural occurs right in the midst of life and right in the midst of history. And when they come down the mountain, it hasn't been that there's been no elapse of time, but life has gone on at the bottom of the mountain and things are continuing, as we're told at the, after the end of the story. And just the right number of hours have passed, the right number of days. This is the supernatural then in the middle of the space-time time world, in the midst of true life and true history. And this is a wonder of the transfiguration. If we could, we could spend all, uh, all morning just thinking of this. It's, it's a whole world view that is involved uh, in this one concept. The next wonder of the transfiguration is that Moses and Elijah is there. Are there. Now, Elijah was translated way, way back. The history is given in 1 Samuel 28 chapter in the 14th verse. We'll not look at it this morning. But many, many hundreds of years before, Elijah had been taken to heaven without dying. Moses, on the other hand, who had lived at 1,500 before Christ, had died. And we're told specifically he had died. One is a dead man, the other man, a man who has been translated. Now, thinking of Moses, therefore, for the moment, especially, here is a man who is dead. But you notice he is not a wisp of vapor. Uh, he is able to be recognized. They did recognize him. There is communication. As we'll find in a moment, there was a three-way conversation between this man who had died, Elijah, who had been translated, and Christ, uh, who uh, had just come up from the mountainside. And it was a... Uh, a conversation, a communication, a verbalized communication, propositional communi uh, verbalized communication that could be understood by the disciples in normal terms. So you have here, so many of the things we fight for in Labri are right here in the midst of the transfiguration. And Moses is dead, but he is not a wisp of vapor. He is able to be recognized. He is, there's, a, there's communication. And of course, immediately we are brought face to face with the fact that if Jesus does not come back before we die, then between death and our, the resurrection of our body, we can see in Moses here on the Mount of Transfiguration that which we will be. So we are not a wisp of, a wisp of vapor. Now, the cartoonist loves to draw the ghost coming in through the keyhole, as it were. But this is not the biblical picture of who we are between death and the resurrection. So here again is something that is wonderful and something that would stand a whole sermon study. 
You will notice also, however, for another thing that is wonderful in the transfiguration, that what you have here is a preview of the, uh, of the coming resurrection. I mean, coming to us, the future resurrection, the resurrection when Jesus comes back again. I'm not thinking of Jesus' resurrection here. You will notice, however, that Jesus does tie it into his own resurrection in the book of Mark, if you follow it with care, because in the book of Mark, they were told that they were not, they were not to tell this uh, until Jesus was raised from the dead. So Jesus himself brings it into relationship with his own resurrection. But there is more than merely bringing it into contact with his own resurrection. It is brought into contact with the resurrection also of that is coming in the future when Jesus returns. So here as the translation, uh, as the transfiguration, I'm sorry, as the transfiguration is in the midst of history, so the future resurrection of the Christian will be in history. It was in history this transfiguration, as we've emphasized, was in space-time history. Uh, Christ's resurrection was in space-time history. And our resurrection will be in space-time history. It is a future history. When we use the word historic, some people get confused because historic to them always means past. That isn't what the word means. It means space-timeness. It means at a certain tick of the clock, something will occur. So there is a future historicness about the coming resurrection. Now notice here, as a preview of the resurrection, the resurrection that is coming, that other things are involved. It is not only an emphasis then on the historic, but you notice that Moses is here. Now who is Moses? Well, thinking of it this way, thinking of it this way, there are other ways we will continue to look at it, but thinking of it this way, we can think of Moses representing the Old Testament dead. Uh, all those who died looking forward to God's great promises uh, all the way through all the millenniums and millenniums and millenniums and millenniums that had occurred, all those are represented by Moses. There were many, many people through all the years stretching way back before there ever was a Jew, ever before there was an Abraham, all the way back to the beginning of history, those who look forward to the coming of the Messiah with varying degrees of knowledge, but in faith. And these are represented by Moses. Moses represents the believing Old Testament dead. You will notice, however, that the disciples were there. And we can say that the disciples, who later died, of course, and they've been dead now for almost 2,000 years, the disciples, the disciples represented the New Testament dead. If you have parents uh, who are Christians or grandparents and you long for them, they are represented here. They're represented in the disciples who at this time were alive but soon would be dead. And I'm talking about those present then represented there, but looking forward to the resurrection, the future resurrection that could come at any moment, as the Bible tells us. Then you have Elijah. Who does re Elijah represent, thinking of it this way? Well, he was translated. He went, to, he went to heaven never having died. And this is recorded in 2 Kings 2, 9 through 11. Any of you that are taking notes? Uh, there you have a record of his translation. He was walking along. He did not die. Uh, and God took him. At least one other man in the Old Testament was taken in the same way. Now you must remember that as the re coming resurrection, the coming historic space-time coming of Jesus in the future, you must remember that it affects not only, not only those who will be dead at that time, the Old Testament dead and the New Testament dead, but there will be a generation of Christians at that time who will be alive. And so you read in 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 15, verses 51 through 54. 
we find Paul speaking like this about the resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15, 51. Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. That is, we, we won't all be dead. All the Christians won't be dead when Jesus comes. There'll be some Christians on the earth who will be alive. Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. I can never read this without a hand of music going through my head. In a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, for the trumpet shall sound, the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible shall put on incorruption, and this mortal shall put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying, that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Now notice, however, it's not only the dead that's involved, but in the 51st verse, these who are not yet dead, but the Christian who will then be alive, and they too shall be changed. Now in 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 17, where perhaps we have a bit more detail on the same subject. But I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, I'm reading 1 Thessalonians 4.13. But I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, that ye sorrow not, even as others which have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. This is these are dead. For this I say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain, so there are those Christians who are alive and remain, until the coming of the Lord shall not, in the word pre uh, prevent here, bringing it down to modern languages, hinder, shall not hinder them which have died, which are asleep, which have died. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, and the voice of the archangel with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. So his discussion here is saying, don't worry, just because some of us are alive, some Christians are alive, it isn't going to matter to the Christians who are dead, because they're going to be raised first. So that's his subject matter. That's what he's talking to in this passage. But notice... He assumes, as a matter of fact, the, it comes the other way. The thing which is disturbing the Christians in, Th in Salonica, uh, Thessalonica, is apparently the fact that what will happen now? We are still alive. What about the dead? And he says, don't worry about that, because they're going to be raised first. But notice that it involves, therefore, what is clearly accepted and what, what we're speaking about this morning, and that is some Christians will be alive. And he speaks of these in 17th verse, then we which are alive. Now, the liberal has tried to say that this shows that Paul has made a mistake, that he expected to be alive when Jesus comes. There's no note of this here. What he's talking about, what he's talking about is the fact that some will be alive. We, by identification, some of us who are Christians will be alive, and Paul must, might have thought maybe I will be, because every Christian has lived uh, as though Christ <coughs> is, could come back in his generation. But he's saying some of us will be alive, and we who are alive will what? Well, when... Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. Very interesting. People write this off and then are just looking at Newsweek last night with the pictures of what the earth looks like from the moon. I thought this was interesting. I thought one day, one day, we'll get a better view. And here you come to the factor that you have a, uh, you have then the Christians, there are Christians who will be dead and raised, and there's the Old Testament, the New Testament saints, Moses represented by Moses and the disciples, but Elijah surely can be taken here uh, to represent, uh, represent ourselves if we are alive when Jesus comes, so whoever is. In other words, Elijah was translated and he was there at the transfiguration, and in the great resurrection day of the future, those Christians who are alive at that day 
will be changed in the twinkling of an eye. So it's all here in the Mount of Transfiguration. However, if we're speaking of wonders at the Transfiguration, we spoke of the space-timeness, Moses and Elijah, the coming resurrection is a preview here, but the real wonder is Christ himself. So in the third verse, turning back to Matthew 17, uh, in the third verse we are there's Moses and Elijah. But the eighth verse really is the, tells us, remember the center here. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no man save Jesus only. Uh, Moses and Elijah was gone, were gone, and Jesus was there. Now, why he is so important is told us also in the fifth verse, because the Father had something to do with this. And while he yet spake, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and behold, a voice out of the cloud which said, and then the Father speaks, this is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. The reason to hear him is because of his person, who he is, and who he is. He is deity. He is the eternal second person in the Trinity. Now, he, therefore, we must understand, is the center of this whole affair. He is the center of this whole drama, if you wish to call upon it this way. Not that it's a play, but certainly is dramatic. And uh, he is the center. It is not, it is not Elijah. It is not Moses, as wonderful as this is. He is not the disciple. The center is not the disciples. The center is Jesus himself. Now, it's intriguing that Moses and Elijah and Jesus talked about something. And what would you think it would be important to talk about if you got Moses and Elijah and Jesus together uh, on the Mount of Transfiguration? If we were having a little poll and we didn't know what the Bible said. I wonder what we would poll would be a fit subject of their conversation uh, for such a titanic moment. Well, the Bible tells us what was the basis, what was their conversation in the book of Luke, where the Transfiguration is also stated. In Luke 9, 30 and 31. So here you have uh, what they were talking about. And behold, there talked with him two men, which were Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spake of his death, which he should accomplish at Jerusalem. So there was only one subject matter that was big enough to have a conversation about in such a moment, and that was his coming death. But why was it the center of it all, the center of their conversation? Why was it the only thing that was worth talking about? Well, because you must understand that Moses and Elijah and the disciples, the, or you can say uh, the Old Testament saints, the New Testament saints, and those who will be translated, all had a stake in his coming death. Because if Jesus had not died, everything would have collapsed. So everything hung upon his coming death. Everything hung upon his substitutionary, propitiatory death. If he had not died, if he had turned aside, uh, Satan tried to turn him aside so many times, if he had, in the words of Peter, actually had, had a pity on himself, uh, everything would have been gone. There would have been no hope for Elijah, translated or not. It would have been the end of Elijah. It would have been the end of, of Moses, and it would have been the end of the disciples, and it would have been the end of everything else, because everything hung at the specific and single point of his death. Everything turns upon the coming death of Jesus. So consequently, there is really only one subject matter of uh, one subject that would be worthy of conversation. It's the center, just the center, the same center we remember as John the Baptist, the last Old Testament prophet pointed out concerning Jesus and introducing him to the Jews. This is the Lamb of God who taketh away the sin of the world. There just is no other conversation big enough, uh, big enough uh, for that moment. It's his coming death. This is what's important, his death. 
resurrection? Important. Yes. His ascension? Important. Yes. His teachings? Important. Yes. But the whole thing centers in his coming death. Now turning back again to Matthew, and we're talking about the real wonder is Christ. And we're saying here in the midst of his real wonder is his person. God the Father says that he is his eternal son. And the wonder of him is that he's coming to die. And having this is the subject of the conversation. Now turning back again to Matthew 17, you'll notice here, speaking still of Christ, of the transfiguration of Jesus himself in the second verse. And he was transfigured before them, and his face did shine as the sun, and his raiment as light. Now here he's glorified. Now a little later he dies, of course, and he's raised from the dead. And there was a, a real glorification in his death, a real glorification in his death. So he was changed, and this Christ, who uh, had a body like our body, his body was changed sufficiently so he still could be touched, he still could eat, but he also could move backward and forward from the seen to the unseen world, backward and forward for many times, many times for 40 days. He could be in a situation, a historic situation, and yet not be seen. He was a portion of the unseen world and suddenly would appear on the, on the Emmaus, uh, road to Emmaus in the room. His glorification continues, of course, in the ascension. So at the ascension, you have an official act whereby this Christ, with his resurrected body, as an official act, and not just as it had been before, going backward and forward into the seen and the unseen world for 40 days, but for as an official act, you have the glorification of his ascension. Now, what is Jesus like now? Well, Jesus is like this now. You see, he ties it into the resurrection. Tell no man until after the resurrection. So he's got it all tied to the resurrection. The resurrection takes place. And then Jesus ascends. Three times since Jesus, three times since Jesus died, men have seen him. Now, I'm not saying that's the only, they haven't seen him more. I'm not at all convinced that other men haven't seen Jesus since the resurrection. But the Bible records three specific times when men saw him. The first was Stephen at his being stoned. The second is, in the, if you'll notice the book of Acts, the ninth chapter, verses 1 through 6. Not ask you to read this responsibly. Acts 9, 1 through 6. It is Christ after his resurrection appearing to Paul on the Damascus road. The road to Damascus. Acts 9, 1 through 6. And Saul, yet breathing out threatenings and slaughter against the disciples of the Lord, went, into, went unto the high priest. And as he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly there shined round about him a light from heaven. And he said, Who art thou, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. It is hard for thee to kick against the prick. another account of this was spoken of the glory light that surrounded this occasion. So what you have is here is this glorified Christ after his, uh, uh, just as he was prefigured in the transfiguration in glory, so you find him after his resurrection and ascension appearing to Saul in glory. 
Now, of course, in this, as we stress so often here at Lobbery, he gives a, there's a personal relationship. He hasn't become, he hasn't become just a concept, an idea, an abstraction. He is the person, Jesus, really glorified and speaking to Paul in, uh, in words and speaking to him in the Hebrew tongue. It doesn't say here, but in another account, we're told he speaks in the Hebrew tongue. In other words, it was a person-to-person relationship with Saul. Christ glorified, yet giving, as we so often say, a propositional, verbalized communication in normal literary category from Christ to Saul. The other man who has seen him, as recorded in Scripture, is John. And John is the old man in the book of Revelation, while he's on the Isle of Patmos. And if you open your Bibles and read again responsibly, Revelation 1, 14 through 18. And what you have here is that John is a prisoner on the Isle of Patmos. It was modern; it was the ancient equivalent, Roman equivalent to a concentration camp. And he was on the Isle of Patmos, and it was on Sunday. It was on the first day of the week, the Lord's Day. And he heard a voice behind him, and he turned around and looked. And when he looked, he saw the glorified Christ. And this is what he saw. I would want you to notice in reading this, very carefully, the words like, as, like, as, uh, as in this area. It's a very important thing because he is, it's not saying this is a material description, but John is using uh, what we can understand to describe the glory of the Christ which he looked upon as he turned and looked at Jesus. So we, verses 14 through 18. Speaking of Christ, his head and his hairs were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were as a flame of fire. And he had in his right hand seven had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was as the sun shineth in his strength. I am the living one that became dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore, amen, and I have the keys of death and hate. So what you have here then, what you have is Jesus as he was seen by John. So you see, looking at the wonder of Jesus, that's what we're talking about, in the Mount of the Transfiguration, he is God. The conversation that they talk about is his coming death, but he is pictured here as really glorified, And later in the resurrection, and then as we see Paul seeing him and John seeing him, as he is at this moment, and as we shall see him when we see him, for we will, when we see him as we shall see him, this is the way we must expect to see him. It is the Christ glorified. Uh, The disciples were with him day after day, day after day. Uh, But he was just a man, as it were walking along through the dust of Palestine. But here in the transfiguration, he is glorified, and you have a prefiguration of what uh, what he is like now, and that which he'll be when we shall see him in the future. So coming back again to the book of Matthew in the 17th chapter, we are indeed reminded uh, of these words of the Father uh, about him being the Son, and then the conclusion of the whole matter, when they finally lifted up their eyes, they saw no man save Jesus only. Now, you notice the phrase here, no man save Jesus only. This is not to be confused with seeing Jesus only in contrast to the Father and the Holy Spirit. 
I'm convinced Christians often make this mistake, uh, that they forget that what's being said here is not see Jesus instead of or in contrast to or above the Father and the Holy Spirit, but see him instead of in contrast to any man, which is an entirely different thing. Jesus was a true man from his birth, and here we're told, don't look at other men, look at Jesus. But we're not being told, look at Jesus, don't look at the Father, and don't look at the Holy Spirit. And Christians make it, uh, this is really can become a great psychological and doctrinal mistake, that Jesus eclipses the, the whole trinity. But that is not what's being taught anywhere in Scripture, and expressly it is not being what is taught here. It is not, fasten your eyes on Jesus and not the Father, fasten your eyes on Jesus and not the Holy Spirit, but when you're looking at him, and then you could say the same about the rest of the Trinity as well, when you're looking at him, this eclipses all other men. And this is the emphasis. Now, in contrast then to all other men, not to the Father and the, Son, the Holy Spirit, but in contrast to the whole, all other men, uh, they are to see, our minds are to be on Jesus only. Now, how? Well, I suggest certain ways. We could suggest more. I'm sure we could think of more, but there are certain ones I would bring to you this morning. And the first is that Christ is the center of all time. Now, in modern man, modern man has a history that's going nowhere, just as then Buddhism, and Buddhism has a history that's going nowhere. And eventually, Hinduism has a history that's going nowhere also, because everything is returning to the pantheistic whole. But surely thinking of modern 20th century man, the existentialist, the modern thinker, history is going nowhere. Nothing really matters. History is not progressing. It's, there's a, a staticness about history, or at least a, an absurdity about history that makes it as good as static to any real intents and purposes. Now as we come down, however, to the scriptural view, it's an entirely different thing. This Jesus, who was there on the Mount of Transfiguration and glorified, we find, of course, that the Bible insists that he has existed forever. He has existed forever. He has always been before there was a creation out of nothing. Before there was anything else, the Trinity was. And so we read in the Gospel of John, in the first chapter, in the third verse, speaking of Jesus, thinking of the second person of Trinity, all things were made by him, and most of you will know that this is an aorist tense in the Greek, which means that there was something brand new occurred, there was something that didn't exist before, and now it came to pass once for all. It wasn't just an eternal creation, an eternal coming forthness, but it was something that happened. It was not, and then it was. All things became by him, and without him, that is, without the second person of the Trinity, there was nothing made that was made. So you have here an understanding that this one, as he claims for himself in his teaching too, has existed from before the foundation of the world. But now we find that after the creation of space-time, and last night in the discussion we were space talking a little bit about the space-time continuum uh, in modern man's thought, the relationship of space and time, the dimensions of space and time. Uh, after the creation of space and time, history is going on, and Jesus stands at the center of that history. You can think of the fall. before the fall. There was a before the fall and after the fall. But as soon as the fall took place, God directed men's mind on the coming Jesus. So immediately history had a perspective. And we're told that the promise came within 24 hours after man revolted against God. 
that the, the seed of the woman should bruise the serpent's head. And so immediately all history had a perspective. History was not abstracted. It was not the existential absurdity. History is absurd to the modern man because it isn't going anyplace. There's no perspective point. It's as though you were drawing, as though there was no such thing as perspective in drawing. And you couldn't put a point and make your perspective in drawing. Nothing would stand together. The whole picture, every picture every man has ever painted would be absurd. But what you have in history is immediately a perspective. The end of the railroad tracks, as it were, that brings the lines together from all places and all sides and of all kinds. And that perspective point, as soon as man fell, was the coming seed of the woman who would bruise the serpent's head. It was a historic space-time point. Now, as soon as Jesus has come, of course, however, then you have a different situation. We are looking back to that. God constantly does things in his providence that men, no matter how much they may want to get rid of God, cannot get rid of. And one of the, one of the things, the curious historic quote-unquote, accident, that places all dating of all the world upon him. The Jewish, men, the Jewish world can still put on the cornerstones of the synagogue another date. But, if you, but in their dating day by day, they must date their life by the coming of Christ. We live in an A.D. and a B.C. The communistic world dates its dating in an A.D. and a B.C. Nobody's able to change the date. It cannot be. It isn't, hasn't been. Someday, I'm sure, I'm sure the Antichrist is going to try to work out, or somebody, uh, a, great, a great new dating system. But so far, every time you write the date, now it's true it's inaccurate by about four years, but that's a small point at this point, that every time you write the date, 1969, you are saying this man is the center of him. That's terrific when you think about people. Just absolutely terrific. When you stand before God in judgment, if you're not a Christian, God's going to have a lot of things to talk about. And that's all the dates you've written on your letters, as well as everything else. So what you have now is a history that's really going somewhere. A history that's going somewhere. But, of course, it's not only that Jesus is the center of history from the time of the fall to his coming, and now we look back upon him, but he is still the center of history because we look forward to him. So you have, for example... In, this, in 1 Corinthians 11:26, we find Paul writing about the communion service, the Lord's Supper. And the Lord's Supper is looking back to the, coming, to, the, to the death of Jesus. But it always looks forward. So you find Paul saying, as often as you do eat this bread and drink this cup, you do show forth the Lord's death until he comes. So history has a flow. It has a perspective point. This man is the perspective point. Immediately the promise was given at the fall, and he was the perspective point. Now we look back, and he is the perspective point of history. We are looking forward to his second coming, and this is the perspective point of history. And history, therefore, has meaning. It is not absurd. So if we think of Jesus being the center of all, the first thing to think of him as being the center of all is the all of all time. I won't go into it at all this morning, but again, it would take a whole study on Jesus as the center of his church. It mustn't be anything else. Jesus is the center of his church. But let's pass on, rather, to, to us individually. As Christians, Jesus is the center uh, to us. And the call to the non-Christian is to make him the center 
To that man who is the non-Christian, to you if you are not a Christian, the call is that you would make him the center. To us who are, to those of us who are Christians, the, he is our center. He is whether we remember it always or not, and we should always remember. So individually, he is the center. You can think of his finished work, the conversation Moses and Elijah was having. I already spoke to this, spoken to this. Uh, they were talking about his death. Well, if Jesus' death is not the center of all your hope, of all your hope of ever being accepted by God, then you're going to hell. It's as simple as this. It's as simple as this. If you have any other center except his, his being and his death, if you bring in humanistic things and make in any way them the center, as soon as you do this, the whole is destroyed. The whole is destroyed. So if there's any hope at all that we will ever, ever stand before God, either in the future life or in the present life, if we're ever, if we're not Christians, if we're ever going to be converted, if we are ever going to really have any place before God or other than his justice and his judgment, uh, or his judgment rather, it will be on the basis of this man's, this man's death in history. Now, notice, however, it's not only a conversion, but we're told in this Matthew passage again, Matthew passage again, Matthew 17, uh, in 5b, hear ye him. God the Father says, hear him. So I would now say, he is the center to us after we're Christians, both in comprehension and in practice. And I'm talking about first in comprehension. Hear ye him. So he is the giver of knowledge. He is the prophet. And in good Reformation theology and describing the offices of Christ, they're always named, and it's true, this is the way it's presented in the Bible, as prophet, priest, and king. He's, he died for us, but he did something before he died for us. He gave us additional knowledge. So he is the great prophet. He is the greatest of all the prophets. He is different from all the other prophets. He is speaking from himself, just as the people who saw him were amazed that he, he spoke with authority. Well, the reason they were amazed is he wasn't speaking as John the Baptist, the last prophet, who spoke with the authority of somebody else. He was speaking with his own authority. So he was not only the greatest of the prophets, but he was totally the unique prophet, for he spoke for himself. He is the giver of knowledge. He is the giver of knowledge. As Christians, and remember now, we're talking about Christ being the center to us personally, and we're talking about, first of all, in comprehension. And he gave us knowledge, but then as we studied last Sunday, the present aspect of salvation, and I'll not repeat it here except to uh, refer to it, he is the center to the Christian also in our Christian life. The true spirituality, uh, the present aspect of salvation, is not to be understood by our producing something in the external world, but Christ producing his fruit through us. This is true spirituality, as we spent an hour and a half considering last week, an hour and a quarter. So you have here now, he is, the, he is the center to us individually. If I'm not a Christian, he must become the center to me. To me. If I am a Christian in comprehension, I am to understand he is to be the center to me indeed. First, in the giving of knowledge, the living word, along with that which he has already given us in the written word in the scripture, the living word and the written word standing together as revealing God to us. As it says in another place, the Christ as the prophet was the revealer of the Godhead bodily. But then it isn't just a matter of knowledge, so without the knowledge we wouldn't know how to wander through the woods and how to wander through the fog. But it is not only that, but in the present life of the Christian, he is the center because he is the one who bears his fruit through us through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, if we put ourselves in his hands. Now that's in 
So that's in comprehension. Now, in practice, in practice, what should be our attitude, our mentality? Well, it should be Jesus only. Remember now, not Jesus in contrast to the other members of the Trinity, but Jesus in contrast to other men. The Bible constantly insists that Jesus is the only one, Christ is the one who is, who is indispensable. So we can think of John the Baptist saying in John 3.30, he must increase, but I must decrease. And this should be our mentality. Our whole perspective of life should be couched in the term that it's Jesus only, that he is the only one which will continue to increase, and each of us must have the psychological reality of the fact that I understand that he is the only one that is to have the strength. I must decrease, he must increase. Now, when we say that only he is indispensable, and we are dispensable, it does not mean that other people can take the individual's place. We've emphasized here many times, uh, the work goes on, but it's a different mix. God uses us. So you don't have Mr. B taking Mr. A's place, therefore they are two building blocks which are interchangeable. That's not true. Your personality does not suffer. But indispensable in the sense that uh, as men fail, either by death or by failure, as men come to an end, either by death or by failure, there is one who always continues and carries on. It is Jesus himself. Jesus is the center of the work. So you can think of Paul. This is his psychological mentality. So Paul says, I am a bondservant. I am a bondservant. I am a slave. A slave of whom? A slave by choice of this Jesus. So in 1 Corinthians 3, in 1 Corinthians 3, 5, 6, and 7, we read like this. Who then is Paul, and who is Apollos, but ministers by whom he believed, even as the Lord gave to every man? So there was an argument. Some people in the church were saying, I was saved by Apollos. And other people were saying, I'm saved by Paul. And Paul said, aren't you stupid? What, a, what an argument. Who then is Paul, and who then is Apollos, but ministers by whom he believed, even as the Lord gave to every man? That is to Paul, certain ministry, up to Apollos, another ministry. The personality does not suffer, it does not disappear, but it's Jesus who, who gives the ministry. I have planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. So then, neither is he that planteth anything, neither he that watereth, but God that gives the increase. Now he that planteth and he that watereth are one, and every man shall receive his own reward according to his own labor. So it is important how we labor, but eventually the mentality of the Christian, the Christian and the Christian worker, and every Christian who is a Christian should be a Christian worker, not in professional sense at all, or full-time sense necessarily, quote-unquote full-time. But having said all this, we are Christian workers. And it should be the psychology of every Christian worker, uh, the psychology of every Christian worker, that after all, I am by choice the bond servant, and it's the master who counts and not the servant. And if that's not my mentality, and let me say very quickly, often it's not my mentality, but when it's not my mentality, I'm just plain wrong. It's as simple as that. And we must, we must have the psychological setting of set, rather, the psychological set to our lives and our thoughts and our lives, uh, that this is the case. He stands at the center and not the servant. And we're all the servants, not just of one another, that isn't what's emphasized here, but of him. So we're talking about, to us individually, Christ is to be the center. Now we find that servants do take over through the centuries servants of God, and remember I keep insisting too, this is Jesus is the center, not, not as in contrast the Father and the Son, but as other men, or men, 
And you have here, through the century, through death or through failure, the burden has been laid down and somebody else has picked it up. They have, if they've never been, as I say, a building block. The one who picked it up was a different personality from the one who laid it down. But it was God's work continuing by God's grace to be done, and God is the center. So you have this man and his eyes have failed, and this man picks it up and he goes, millennium after millennium. And what we must see, the burden is laid down. As I was praying this morning in our pastoral prayer of the church, the church victorious and the church at rest and the church at war, and they're one, and one man lays it down, and another picks it up, sometime by failure, sometime by death. So you can have, for example, Cain. Cain killed Abel. That wasn't the end of the story, because a Seth was born who picked it up and carried on the line. Abraham, great Abraham, died. And Isaac certainly didn't take Abraham's place. Isaac just dug his father's well. But the work was carried on, nevertheless. Isaac laid it down, and Jacob took it up. Jacob laid it down, and there was a Joseph here. Joseph died, and in due time there came a Moses. Moses died, and there was a Joshua. All these men had their own personalities. They were all meaningful. They were not just machines. They were not just a, a puppet. But nevertheless, they were not the center, as we see the, the stage of history, of space-time history flowing on uh, from the fall to the second coming. They were not the center. Jesus was the center, just as he was in the Mount of Transfiguration. This is my beloved son, hear him. And when they looked up, it was Jesus only. So in the stage of the work of God through the millenniums of the church from the fall to the second coming, it is no man being the center, but it is, uh, it is Jesus at the center. And it is, the God at the, it is God at the center. So you have the judges, one after another, some dying, some failing, and work being carried on. Eli did fail at the end of his life with tears. You must say Eli failed. But there was a little boy, Samuel, who was already there to pick up and carry it on. Saul failed. Saul failed with great dismalness, did King, great King Saul fail. But there was a David who was there who carried it on. In the northern kingdom, Elijah was translated. And there was an Elisha who had a much quieter ministry. But never mind, the work was carried on. In the southern kingdom, you would have the prophet Isaiah who died. But in due time, there was a Jeremiah to continue. You can think of Jeremiah, and then you think of Ezekiel, and then you think of Daniel. And by the time Daniel was ready to lay down his burdens, not in failure, but in death, there was a Zerubbabel. Each of them fitted to the moment of history, each of them carrying on in a completely different way, each of their personalities being valid. The ministries meaning something different uh, in each case, and yet the mix was always there. It was carried on. It was, these were not the center, and to the extent in which any of them got caught up and hooked in the fact uh, on their own centeredness, they missed their own place of importance. Their place of importance is not as the center, but they had a place of importance because there was a center which was greater than they were. And if these had to be the center, the thing was a mess. But it wasn't this way. There was another center which gave their non-centeredness meaning. There was a Rubbable laid down the burden and there was an Ezra. And Ezra laid down the burden and there was a Nehemiah. In the New Testament, a Paul laid down the burden and there was a Timothy and a host of elders. And the church flows on. So at this particular point, what I'm saying is that individually, Christ is to be the center. Not only in our doctrine, but he is in being the center of our psychology. I don't like the word psychology because that sounds subjective. But I mean our thought world, our thought framework, our, uh, our perspective, our mental perspective, however, I, however you want to say it. But this is what I mean. Christ is to be the center to us individually. 
Now, when we have this, this then immediately comes and stands in contrast to other things being the center. And I want to mention just four other things that we must be careful not to put in the center. The first is any totalitarian state or any totalitarian church. If I have this kind of a mentality, standing there as it were in the Mount of Transfiguration with the disciples, this is my beloved son, hear him. And they looked up and they saw Jesus only, and he is the perspective. As this is a reality to me, there is no place for a totalitarian state and there's no place for a totalitarian church. There's just no place for it. There's no place for it. And it doesn't matter whether it's a totalitarian state, a church putting itself between the individual and God, or whether it's a totalitarian state or society, it has no right to be in the center. There's a place for the state, there's a place for the church, but neither of them have a right to be in the center. The center is, is a person. Remember what I'm saying, it's not Jesus the Son in contrast, it's not Jesus the, uh, pardon me, it's not Jesus uh, in contrast to the Trinity, it's Jesus in contrast to other men. That's what's involved in what we're talking about here. And there is no place for a totalitarian state, there is no place for a totalitarian church, or anything else totalitarian, and really totalitarian, to be put in the place of the one who should be at the center. Now, as we think of totalitarian states and totalitarian churches, they're not very far off from us today. They're breathing down our neck, as it were, every, every turn. But having said this, and not only in communist countries, but you remember our struggle here, thinking of the modern elites that are offering themselves, the markets, new left elites. Here you have a totalitarian society or a totalitarian state offering itself again as the integration point, as the center. Once more it's coming. And as it comes at this, and then you have the right-wing elite trying to put itself in the center, the establishment elite, the Galbraith elite. And in every case, the Christian must say, I want the state to have its place. I want the society to have its place. I want the church to have its place. But if you come to the center, I am against you, because he is at the center. Now, this carries with it something that's more subtle. And it's more subtle, especially when it takes its place in the church or in religious setting. And that is a totalitarian human leadership. And this is always pressing upon us. And we must be careful. I would warn you to be careful at every turning. Only, only God, the Trinity, may stand at the center. There is to be leadership in the church under the leadership of the Holy Spirit. But any time leadership begins to take the prerogatives of putting itself at the center and being what I'm calling this morning totalitarian leadership, even by good men, it's wrong. You can must understand Paul's mentality was not this, where he says, who is Paul, who then is Paul, and who is Apollos? But ministers, by whom he believed, even as the Lord gave to every man, it is God-giving, and so God must is the only one who stands at the center. And it's the same with John the Baptist. He must increase, but I must decrease. The threat, the constant threat of a totalitarian leadership. And it doesn't only have to be a Hitler. It doesn't only have to be a Stalin, though this is one must be careful of constantly and surely in our day with double care. But it also can be a, a, a man who is a Christian man who gets caught up into the mechanics of leadership and puts himself, whether he knows it or not, at the place where only God should be. And that is wrong. It must be resisted and resisted as the psychological uh, set to our mind. 
Now, where, now, there are other things that as soon as I begin to understand Jesus only, God here, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, the other things that must not be placed at the center. And these are more subtle still. Uh, we can feel as a two-tied coat, a totalitarian state, a totalitarian church. We might even feel as a two-tied coat, a totalitarian human leadership that forgets that it can make mistakes. But these are even more subtle, what I'm going to mention next. And they fall into two classes. And that is any phase of Christian work that becomes central instead of Christ and the Trinity being central. So you can have Christian work, a certain phase of Christian work, taking the center of the stage, the integration point. It becomes, and then it's wrong. It's curious that we can do this in the name of Christ and push Christ right off the stage. And the places I've seen this where it has been most plain is where a church gets caught up in a building project. And heaven and earth is moved for the building project. And there is no place for Jesus. Everything's excused in order to have a building. And it must not be. He is the center. The building is only an instrument. And it is a very small instrument, a necessary one. One needs a roof over one's head. But having said this, it is a small portion of the whole. If it becomes anything except a mere instrument, it is completely, completely wrong. It can be also other things. It can be those who are see quite properly that the church of our generation is threatened, that the, even Christians today are no longer talking about the purity of the church. And I have known men and worked with them for years who saw the danger of the loss of purity of doctrine in the church of Christ and have fought for it and fought for it. And you find after a few years, this has become the center. They're fighting for the purity of the church, and it is the center, and the Jesus who supposedly is being spoken about is forgotten. He has become secondary. He is pushed out of the picture. In the name of Christ, Christ is dethroned. But it can not only be those of us who are fighting for the purity of the church, it can be those of us who are fighting for evangelism and for the salvation of souls. Salvation of souls is not to be the center. It is Christ who is the center. And I have seen this happen too, that men get caught up either in personal work or in other, one form of evangelism or another in which this becomes the center and Jesus himself is no longer the center. Something has usurped the integration point. And we must in every case say even the best of things is wrong. Even the best of things are wrong if Jesus is not the center. Even the best of things. As a matter of fact, it can be more subtle still. And that is, is that we can make certain doctrines center, central. Certain doctrines can become central in our thought and in our ministry. For instance, I am a Presbyterian, so I'll choose this first. The doctrine of predestination, which comes from the Reformed side of the church. All right, it's something that in the sovereignty of God, there's a place for teaching. But I have known some of my very dear friends who get so hooked on preaching this doctrine, that this doctrine and not God becomes the center. No longer is God the center. It's just this doctrine. The doctrine has taken the doctrine of this has taken the doctrine of the existence of God and His person, and the wrong thing has been placed in the center. And as soon as you do this, it is like a cam that goes off center and just begins to bang and bang and bang. It is a tire that becomes flat, and the whole car bumps. So the same thing can be said of many other doctrines. You know those, you know you've known those surely who made the doctrine of 
the type of baptism a person should have, to be the center. And you, you always hear this. And it becomes the center of time, the center of conversation, the center of life, the same center of battle, really the center of, of perspective. And as soon as you do, the thing is out of whack because there is only one center, and that is, well, God is there. He's really there. And what does he have to say about himself? And then everything fits in as a nicely ordered closet or as a beautiful thing of box. Well, every voice has a closet. But as soon as you get another thing in the center, instead of God being the center, Jesus only, God being in the center, as soon as you do this, you must understand the whole thing is lopsided. And so the best of things, not only the best of Christian activities, such as standing for the purity of the church or personal evangelism or anything else, but any doctrine, even though right doctrine, that become the center instead of Jesus, instead of Christ in the Trinity, the thing is false. Nothing may be the center. And this is what we must emphasize. It's Jesus only. It really is Jesus only. Not in contrast to the other persons of the Trinity, but to men. And immediately there is no place, there is no place then uh, for a totalitarian state. There's no place for a totalitarian church. There's no place for a totalitarian human leadership. But there's no, there should be no place either for putting a certain Christian work in place of that which should be central or even a doctrine which should, has, should be preached and strongly preached and yet put in this wrong place. It's spoiled. Now then finally and lastly at the end of the message, I've already spoken on this, but to sum it, uh, bring it to the conclusion, and that is, I must not be in the center. I must not be in the center. As soon as I'm in the center, uh, the thing is again completely out of whack. So you find in Matthew 16, and you remember our study today began with 16:28, and then flowed on into the 17th chapter as a unity. So this is very, very close, you see, to this, to the very passage where we're studying this morning. And in 16:24 we read, then said Jesus to his disciples. If any man shall come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Don't be superficial. It doesn't mean just be willing to suffer. It doesn't mean just be willing to suffer. It means denying yourself in the sense that you don't have yourself at the center. A person can, a person can be willing to be a martyr and yet not be really denying himself. A person can be doing God's work with great sacrifice and yet not be denying himself. The denying of oneself here is a different thing. It is simply that in practice, we who are Christians who are against humanists must be against, against humanism rather, must be against our humanism, our personal humanism. We can't have it this way. The Christian must understand that as we were speaking last night in the discussion, only God is independent. We are dependent. We are dependent. He made us. We are dependent. He alone is independent. Uh, we are, must not stand at the center of the universe. Not for a minute. And then, of course, we all do. And we must tell the Lord we're sorry. So it isn't only that we are not to sin. Now, we're not to sin. That's fair enough. But that isn't what this is saying. It's not saying don't sin. It says don't, don't have yourself at the center. Don't just do something less, but deny yourself. Not as the pantheist denies you. See, in the East, you deny your personality. You say it isn't important, and you go on uh, to, our, to a nirvana or something wherein you finally will your personality be lost. It isn't this. You have a right to your personality because you've been made in the image of God. 
You have a right to your personality and the fulfillment of your personality because one day, well, God is so interested in you, he's going to raise your body from the dead. The whole man is of an interest to God. But while you have a right to your personality, what you don't have a right to is to be at the center of things because you're only created. You're only a creature. You're only dependent. Only God is independent. And you mustn't be at the center of things. You must deny yourself in this deep and profound sense. And it, can, it cannot be done once for all. It's existential. It's a constant moment by moment understanding that it's God only. It is not myself. So whether it's for salvation, if I'm trying to win salvation and turning away from the centrality of the existence of God and the work of Jesus, and the person, the work of Jesus Christ, I can never be saved. But as a born-again Christian, as one who is already in the kingdom of God's dear Son, I must look away consciously and carefully I must look away from the totalitarian state and society, the totalitarian mores, which come to me in the Western society as well as the Eastern, imposed upon me, the totalitarian state, the totalitarian society, the totalitarian the human leadership, which is always pressing upon us from one side and another. I must look away, I must look away with care from putting something of the Lord's work in the center instead of the Lord himself, I must look away from putting a secondary doctrines, though important and truthful doctrines, from the center, and I must keep the doctrine centered where it should be, and that is the existence and the person of the Trinity, including the reality of the person of Christ. I must put all these things aside. I must put away most of all the centrality, anything that would make myself central, and I must understand, really and truly, I'm just a creature created by God. In contrast to all these other things, therefore, in contrast to all men, in contrast to all the things of men, in contrast to even all the things that God has made, I must turn away from the centrality of anything else, including the centrality of myself, and I must end simply where these men ended when they looked up on the Mount of Transfiguration, that it's no man, save Jesus only. Shall we pray together? Our Heavenly Father, we ask you that you will quiet us, and we won't say anything more in prayer. Help us. Help us. And we ask it. In the name of this Jesus, who is your eternal Son, and the one indeed that when they looked up, there was no one else there. And we pray to God in centrality that this may be the perspective, the set of our lives, that you're the center, that the Trinity stands at the center. The reality of the person of Christ stands at the center. Teaches our Father that not only may we praise thee, but that we may be that which we can be. For we know, God, when we're at the center, we're not even what we can be. We destroy even this. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.